a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Seriously, I'm glad you joined me today. You know what the world needs? It needs more wrong thinkers. And that isn't just someone who's going to argue or say, uh every time that they hear something. It's a person who takes the time and the effort to be as informed as they can about what's going on, to think as clearly and as independently as possible. And boy, oh boy, is there ever need for that today. I just want to give a quick shout out to my sponsors who make this program possible on a daily basis. And they include great sponsors like GovernYourIncome.com, uh, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, also HSLAmmo.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. Well, I don't, I don't want to sound like I'm bragging, but at the same time, I do feel a little bit of pride in telling you that finally... I have arrived. I got this email yesterday. Let's see. It says, uh, hi, the Brian Hyde Show. This is from YouTube, by the way. Our team has reviewed your content, and unfortunately, we think it violates our medical misinformation policy. We've removed the following content from YouTube. So I guess if you go for the video that uh, was posted of my show from December 28th, hour one, it's gone. YouTube says, we know that this might be disappointing, but it's important to us that YouTube is a safe place for all. If content breaks our rules, we remove it. If you think we've made a mistake, you can appeal and we'll take another look. Keep reading for more details. Now, this is the part I want you to understand. How your content violated the policy. YouTube doesn't allow claims about COVID-19 vaccinations that contradict expert consensus from local health authorities or the World Health Organization. Now, because this is the first time, it's just a warning. If it happens again, your channel will get a strike and you won't be able to do things like upload, post, or live stream for a week. So, I don't think it's going to be very long before my next uh, three strikes come. (laughs) But... I'm not going to change anything. I, I do feel a certain sense of accomplishment that will finally, finally, at long last, you know, they have, they have noticed that uh, someone is speaking truth here. And it's, it may not even be me. This is probably an article that I shared. But this, look, here's, here's the gist of it. It's not a matter of, hey, I'm right, and they're not letting me be right on their platform. Please understand, YouTube is the least important means of getting this program out there. It's one of many different channels, one of many different platforms. I'm on uh, actually several dozen different platforms, podcasting platforms and social media. So YouTube is, is kind of an afterthought. But the principle that's at stake here is why on earth aren't we allowed to question certain things that have been stated and then walked back and then, you know, we've been told something totally different by the people in authority. Why Why is it that YouTube, among other platforms or other uh, social media or tech giant uh, outlets, why is it that they are so insistent on controlling what anyone is allowed to consider, the questions that anyone is allowed to ask? 
And I don't have an answer for you as to why that is. All I know is when someone tries to, to limit your access to even ideas, especially questions, that's a big problem. So they call it a claim, <clears throat> and, 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 you know, I don't share stuff that is just wild-eyed, spittle-flinging, conspiracy, uh, conspiracy theory kind of stuff. Now, some of it is a little bit off the, the mainstream beaten path, but then again, look at, what, look at what you are required to believe to stay within the boundaries of mainstream thought. You're required to believe that the uh, the coronavirus, in particular COVID-19, is somehow the worst, most dangerous virus that has ever happened, and it requires that everybody give up a large measure of their freedom, and they all show an outward signal by putting on a face mask, and they all line up and they get the vaccine, and the vaccine will protect you, except it doesn't protect in the way that it was sold to us. And, you know, we're not allowed to question, why is it that uh, people who are stockholders in these pharmaceutical companies that produce these vaccines are getting uh, extraordinarily wealthy from a product that people are being told by law or at least by policy they have to take or else? Don't you think it's wise to ask a few questions about these sort of things? I do. And if you choose to get the vaccine, that's fine. As long as it's your informed consent that's at play here and not just fear stampeding you and the rest of the herd into this corner of the corral where everybody can get their jabs. So I I don't want to sound like I'm complaining because I'm really not. You don't get opposition if you're not having impact. And this is the first little sense of, all right, somebody finally noticed. It's not like I'm trying to be radical. In fact, if I can confess something to you, I I really put forth every effort that I can every single day on this program to be as reasonable and as rational as I can, even though I know full well some of the topics that I cover are going to make people uncomfortable. They're going to bump into the limits of uh, many people's mental universes, sometimes even my own. And when I bring these things up, it's not for the purpose of, oh, let's see what we can do to stir people up and get everybody divided and angry today. In fact, if there's anything, if there's an overarching prime directive to to how I approach the topics, however difficult or however um, gentle they might be, the main thing that I'm trying to focus on is to do so in a way that doesn't bring more anger into an already volatile and upsetting situation. And I don't always succeed. But I think for the most part... I'm able to, to bring these ideas out and, and share commentators with you and articles with you that will at least provoke the thought on your part. What you do with that information is up to you. But can we at least agree that uh, censorship is, uh, is something that should always raise some red flags? If someone is saying you can't look at that, you can't think that, you can't hear that, you can't consider this. That's going to be a person who is vying for control of your mind. I'm not looking for control of your mind. I'm asking you, step up and plop yourself down in the driver's seat for your mind, for your worldview. It's more important than ever. 
Actually, later in the program, I'm going to be sharing with you an article from Caitlin Johnstone. And one of the things that she points out here, this should be so obvious to everybody, but it's that Silicon Valley shouldn't be restricting public discourse about COVID measures which affect everyone. So, I'm not trying to take a victory lap here, but I will tell you, I am, I am happy. I'm just surprised. Wow, it took a long time. I mean, these are, these are the kind of things that can make a guy doubt himself, you know? <laughs> what, what am I doing wrong? Why isn't somebody trying to ban me or deplatform me? It's a good measure that uh, you are speaking to someone other than everybody who agrees with you if, uh, if you are getting some good pushback. It took me a long time to learn this because being criticized, being called names, being, you know, told, you know, you are crap and everything you do and say is crap. That's a hard thing to, to take at first. But then your skin thickens and you realize, you know what? If I really have committed to the truth or at least committed to the truth of the things that I believe and I'm open to new truth, that even if that truth requires, you know, that I may have to adjust my thinking at some point. But if you've ever come to that point, you've paid the price to know what you know. You've already won the toughest battle. So it's not important to me that everybody should agree with this. What drives me far more than the need for approval is the need to get that information out there simply because there are people actively trying to limit our ability to even consider it much less, you know, to, to make up our own minds on it. I don't know why, but that's, it's offensive to me that someone would think that they know better than I do what, uh, what I should be able to consider and what I shouldn't. Now, this can extend to a lot of different areas. I won't go too deep into the weeds, but I'll tell you, I had an old friend, uh, one of my old buddies, my, my mentors, Jim Lorenz, who said, look, either you decide what you read what you see, what you hear, or somebody else does. There is no, you can't be, you know, just partially censored. He says, uh, you know, censorship is, is like being pregnant. You are or you aren't. You are being censored or you're not being censored. So I'm encouraging you, choose for yourself what you will consider and what you won't. We've been taught our whole lives, but you can't trust yourself. You're not an expert. Yes, and experts with consensus always get it right. I think we're seeing that uh, the opposite of that is the truth. Nonetheless, let's continue forward with Wrong Think. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's just dive right in here. You know, something that's been very interesting to see, at least in recent years, is how socialism seems to be a very agreeable idea, especially for some of the younger demographics out there. In some circles, it's very fashionable. And even so, there are a lot of folks who uh, may claim to embrace socialism without actually understanding what it is. I like how my friend Gary Welch used to describe it. And, and, and he, he said, socialism at its heart is the belief that there is a, an elite group of people, a very small cadre of people, who are better equipped to make all the decisions about your life than you are. 
In other words, you're pretty much a sheep, and you need need some wise shepherds, or in the parlance of uh, you know animal farm, animals who are a little more equal than you, to make those kinds of decisions. Well, Albert Eisenberg has a great article here to help clear up some of the confusion of those people who are either uh, claiming to be socialist or just socialism curious. He says, here are three signs you're not actually a socialist. Albert Eisenberg says, America's youngest generations are succumbing to the lure of socialism. What Winston Churchill called the philosophy of failure, the creed of ignorance, and the gospel of envy is increasingly the de facto mindset for young Americans, including a majority of young Democrats. And he asks, how can this be? Do millennials and Gen Zers, the same generations that revolutionized ride-sharing, bought into Airbnb, and demanded mobile banking, truly support a centralized, planned economy? And the answer is probably not. The truth is most self-professed socialists don't really know what socialism is and are really just conscientious or frustrated consumers. Could this be you? Well, he says, here are a few ways to decide. Number one, you have the newest iPhone or a phone from within the last three years. See, socialists don't rely on innovation from the private sector to improve their lives. They turn to centralized government planning, and they certainly oppose paying through the nose to purchase tech from a private company. So if you have the newest iPhone or similarly, similarly upgraded smart tech, then you're most likely not a socialist at heart, or at least not a very good one. And that's actually pretty understandable. Tech swag is almost exclusively coming from the private sector because the private sector and its market incentives will always provide a better path to innovation than the public sector. Who hasn't thrown up their arms in frustration over a government-run website or wait time to file taxes or secure a government ID in the last two years? Behold, the fruits of central planning. Number two, when you look for an Uber, do you also check Lyft? For pricing, Uber XL for your large group, Uber Black Car after the pregame, Lyft if it's cheaper. Comparing the prices of similar services, weighing your options, and choosing the best fit as a customer is capitalism in its purest form. Now, if this sounds like you, he says there's no shame in it. Comparing options is only human nature. Sure, having hundreds of choices in the deodorant aisle probably might not make us happier. But having options when it comes to the services we need, especially options that pit service providers against each other in terms of pricing, is very favorable to consumers. Bonus points, he says, do you tip your drivers who go above and beyond in the service they provide to show your appreciation in the form of a financial reward? That's merit-based pay. And while supporting or engaging in such behavior may make you a good person, it also makes you a very bad socialist. Okay, number three, this is the third sign that you're not actually a socialist. You think a forest fighter, ER nurse, or garbage collector should be paid more than someone with a safer, easier job. Now, it's been a tough couple of years for American workers, says Albert Eisenstein. And he says COVID-19 revealed our need for essential workers and showed the heroism of those who responded to the call rushing into hospitals to protect the most vulnerable or charging into forest fires to save cherished wildlife. Those who cleaned up the trash while many of us sat on our laptops deserve both respect and a good paycheck. 
The sentiment is both humane and understandable, but it isn't socialism. Socialism's aim is to their socialist aim is to provide the same compensation for people across the board. So that would mean people whose work is heroic, like treating gunshot wound victims or barreling into skin blistering heat to save wildlife and homes, would only ever earn the same wage as a desk job or no job at all. He says paying people the same amount for jobs with vastly different risk profiles, requirements, and impact on others is a guaranteed way to deter people from doing the harder, more dangerous jobs. If you agree that people work for compensation and that more valorous jobs like ER nurse, firefighter, or garbage collector should earn commensurate compensation, well, then you're a very bad socialist indeed. So what does this tell us? Well, he says there are likely a number of bad socialists in the cohort of people who refer to themselves as such. And what's more, we also know that defenders of capitalism haven't done a very good job explaining what the freedom to choose and innovate means for regular people. So Albert Eisenberg says, look, young people who profess to be socialists aren't really yearning for a centrally planned economy. In fact, what they're doing is communicating a broad set of sentiments that capitalism has tarnished many things in the natural world, that wealth inequality is a problem, and that consumption culture is ugly. But he says, in reality, you don't have to support a centralized economy to be discontented with the market or environmental degradation or poverty. In fact, if you're upset with any of those, you shouldn't turn to socialism as a cure-all, because historically, Socialism has been responsible for making these societal problems much worse. So Albert Eisenberg says, look, you may not find yourself worshipping at the altar of capitalism, but if you like iPhones, comparison shopping, and merit-based pay, you're probably not a socialist. I like his message here. I think it's a, it's a solid message for anybody who's thinking that, uh, well, you know, of course I embrace socialism. I think one of the biggest things that uh, that concerns me is uh, socialism, I think, is, is based, or at least the people that I know who tend to embrace the more socialist mindset, it's often because they see some kind of unmet need or they see what they perceive as, as uh, someone who is, is downtrodden or otherwise um, in, in a state of neglect. And I think that they legitimately want to help. And if, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to be rude here. I'm just suggesting that they don't understand the difference between centrally planned collectivist solutions versus free market solutions that honor the rights of the individual. And socialism, of course, is the stepping stone to Marxism, hardcore communism. Why is that? Because at its heart, Envy and the desire to mold other people and to bring them into line with the collective by force is always an option. I know people look at countries and say, well, look at the Scandinavian countries. They're socialist. Are they really? I mean, in some things, you know, they they may have some uh, centrally planned tendencies, but guess what? So do we. So it's a term that gets thrown around a lot. Capitalism, likewise, people talk about capitalism. And for some people, all it means is, well, that just means the people who have capital, the laws will favor them. And you know what? There's truth to that sentiment. 
But that's not what capitalism actually is or should be considered. You know, if you, if you want a really good definition, free market capitalism is simply about having choice, letting the market make the decisions. Absent government interference, absent government force. How could this possibly work? I, I know there are people asking that. How could this happen? If it's not under the control of the state, by definition, it should be out of control. See, that's the creed of the statist, which is another form of collectivism. And yet you give people the opportunity to solve problems and create value for others and reap the rewards of creating that value. That's how problems get solved. But it involves personal choice. So let's not lose sight of that. We'll be back in a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I feel like I'm in the groove now. Happily offending those who need to be offended (laughs) and informing those who wish to be informed. By the way, my program is made possible by great sponsors like LifesavingFood.com. Any thoughts you've had about food storage are probably thoughts you should take the time to consider and maybe even act on. And I can tell you this, you will find great selection still. Prices are as good as they're going to get. Look, the price of everything is going up. Inflation is happening. It's, it is accelerating and will likely accelerate in the coming year as gas prices go up. You know the price of everything else, every bit of food or every other thing on store shelves goes up as well, simply because that's, you know, the the increase is built into the cost of getting those items to the store. Not to mention we've had problems with the supply chain, which could, in fact, you know, worsen. Knock on wood, so far it hasn't happened, but we we are seeing numerous overlapping crises. It's a great time to shore up your position. And food storage with a good 25-year shelf life is a really good way to do that. So please visit my sponsor link, lifesavingfood.com. Get a 15% discount, no sales tax, free delivery. They've made it as simple as possible. You can just visit thebrianhideshow.com, click on my show notes, and there's a link right there to take you to my sponsors. Well, if you've ever made a stand for freedom, any type of stand, big or small, chances are you have been labeled as a radical in some people's eyes. And that's not a bad thing. Richard M. Ebling has a great article that was just published on the American Institute for Economic Research that explains how winning freedom requires radical solutions or some radical solutions. He says, suppose that there was a button in front of you that if you pushed it, it would in one instant abolish all the governmental controls and regulations on the U.S. economy. Would you push that button and in doing so transform the United States into a society of free people? People who would associate with each other based on voluntary exchange, with government limited to protection of life, liberty, and honestly acquired property. Now he says there are many people today who speak about the intensifying heavy-handedness of the government and its increasing stranglehold on people's freedom and the country's potential renewed prosperity. They often cogently demonstrate the failure and corruption of political manipulation in society. And they say the private sector is the key to real and lasting solutions to our social problems. But we almost never hear voices declaring a desire to actually push the button. 
Indeed, what passes for deregulation or market-based reform has limited connection with any call for a truly laissez-faire capitalist United States. So whether the issue is the coming crisis in Social Security, the failure of public education, the supposed environmental apocalypse, the claimed threat from mass immigration into America, or the fear of jobs and businesses lost to foreign competition. The proposed fixes all entail a continuing intrusion of political power into the peaceful affairs of the citizenry. So he looks at a couple of examples here, starting with let's abolish rather than tweak Social Security. Richard Ebling writes, for over 85 years, the federal government has asserted its right and duty to plan the retirement of the American people through a compulsory pension system perversely called Social Security. Well, now finally, the game is almost up with not enough people in the working age population to subsidize all the retirees who've been promised a certain level of income in their later years. In fact, the Social Security Trust Fund will run out of money no later than the early or mid-2030s. Money collected from the working age population and from cashing in Treasury securities rather accumulated from prior decades when the Social Security system ran surpluses that it lent to the rest of the federal government will not be enough to pay fully eligible retirees. Monthly payments to recipients may be cut by as much as 25%. But rather than admit that it's all been a fraud, and simply end this forced intergenerational redistribution of wealth, even pro-market advocates merely propose various forms of tweaking the system, raising the retirement age, lowering the promised benefits, allowing Americans to invest a portion of their plundered money into government-approved mutual fund accounts. Well, Richard M. Ebling comes right out and says, this is not freedom. It's merely a continuation of the same old compulsory system under different rules and regulations. What might real market reform look like? Well, one possibility would be to just abolish Social Security. The government directly owns more than one quarter of all the land in the United States. This land, with all of its mineral resources, forests, and grazing areas, could be sold off at public auctions over a period of time with the proceeds being dispersed as payback to Social Security recipients in descending order, beginning with the oldest recipients. Some estimates suggest that the payments might almost equal what the government has robbed from people over the decades. Social Security taxes likewise should be ended. Those who've been victimized by the system and who still could not make ends meet would and could rely on the benevolence and generosity of good people, just as it was before Social Security was imposed in the 1930s as part of FDR's New Deal. From here, he turns to real school choice means ending government schools. Ebling says many Americans are also frustrated and disappointed with the educational failure of mandated government schooling, along with the imposed political correctness in the government monopoly school system, with its most recent manifestation being in the form of critical race theory. The shift into private schools and the growth of homeschooling demonstrate how much people desire to take greater control of and responsibility for their children's education, especially after the closing of most government schools for more than a year during the coronavirus crisis. He says more and more parents seem willing to make the financial and related sacrifices to educate their children, despite the tax load leveled on the average American family. But then he asks, where are the free market voices that propose simply abolishing the government schools? 
Instead, schemes are devised for vouchers, educational tax credits, and charter schools. Now, these, of course, offer useful and pragmatic alternatives for many parents wanting to opt out of failed government schools. But the more fundamental question left out of these debates and proposals is why is government in the school business to begin with? Government schools began in the U.S. as a tool for political indoctrination to make all young Americans uniform and obedient good citizens, as defined by the political authorities. Now, this has continued to the present time. The only thing that's different today from, say, 30 or 40 years ago is what the state curriculum designers consider to be the politically correct set of ideas to try to implant into the minds of those in their compulsory care. Now, he says private schooling would end wars over public school curriculum. All the often angry school battles of, say, the last 50 years over prayer and sex education in the classroom or evolution versus intelligent design in the biology curriculum or saying the Pledge of Allegiance at the start of the school day or now critical race theory in every facet of the learning process would disappear if the state school system were fully privatized. Parents would send their children to the schools that taught the values and offered the curriculum they considered best for preparing them for the trials and opportunities of life, adult life. So how might this be brought about? Well, he's got some ideas here. Privatization, he says, would introduce real competitive excellence as schools strove to attract students at market-determined prices. Under a free market educational system, rarely would any child be left behind because competition would lower the cost of a good education and private charities would extend opportunities for the less financially fortunate through scholarships and grants. Real market reform would entail privatizing the existing network of government schools. Now, they might be turned over to the existing administrators and teaching staffs who would become the stockholders of the companies. Or they could be auctioned off to private firms desiring to operate a single school or acquire a chain of schools on the market. At the same time, all legal and regulatory restrictions on operating private schools and all government rules on curriculum and staffing would be abolished. The bottom line is freedom needs people who are willing to push the button. And too many people in the free market camp view these kinds of proposals as too radical. They're just not ready for such root and branch change. He says Americans need to be weaned from government dependency through gradual changes that make them amenable to more comprehensive free market reforms down the road. Well, there are two responses to this argument. First, many of these more moderate and modest reform proposals threaten to entrench state power even more. Private investment accounts with Social Security dollars run the risk of politicizing the financial markets even more than we're seeing at the present time. And the voucher plan would extend the government's rules and regulations to all private schools that accept these political dollars. Second, he says, unless there are voices unafraid to clearly and persuasively present the principled, uncompromising case for a free society, the goal of liberty may never be established. So freedom requires people who are calling for pushing the button and who demonstrate why it would be good if we could do so. I get it. That sounds pretty radical. But it also sounds right. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. Once again, thanks so much for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. You know, being a wrong thinker will make you appreciate those people around us who are willing to speak the truth no matter the cost. And I say this in the context of if you haven't seen Dr. Peter McCullough's interview with Joe Rogan, now, granted, this is this is nearly three hours of your day that it's going to take. So you may want to do it in installments, but it is absolutely worth your time. And I just want to share. Uh, there's a couple of things here from a quick synopsis that I saw of what may be the most important interview over the course of the past two years. Uh, this is a piece from uh, Dr. John Dale Dunn, published on American Thinker. And he says, if you want to see and hear a brilliant man expound on a subject that he's devoted himself to for an intense almost two years, like about half a million other interested persons, just take a look at the Rumble video of Joe Rogan's interview with Peter McCullough, MD of Dallas, Texas, put up on December 15th, 2021. There's a link right here in the article. Now, Dr. McCullough describes it as a grand rounds during the give and take of the interview, and as as a doctor... Uh, John Dunn says, hey, as a physician who's been at many Grand Rounds events in my 50-year career, it certainly was to him. Grand Rounds is the medical school or hospital event where members of the medical department display their erudition and eloquence on matters of import. In this case of this interview, uh, Mr. Rogan was the inquirer and Dr. Dale McCullough, the eager and well-prepared respondent. Now, their performance was extraordinary on both sides. Good, penetrating, pertinent questions by Rogan and satisfying answers from McCullough, backed by his command of the medical concepts and research pertaining to the subject, COVID-19. So I guess I should probably give some warning right now to uh, my, my friends, the Facebook or fa- the uh, YouTube censors, who are likely going to uh, have some issue with this. You may want to reach for your heartburn pills right now, my dear censor. And if you're ready to give me that next strike... I'm just going to give you a couple highlights from the two-hour, 45-minute-long interview. In this interview between Joe Rogan and and, uh, Dr. Peter McCullough, they talked about the early wrong-headed decision to push unprecedented lockdowns, school closings, and masking when the initial information on the virus didn't support that kind of mitigation. Also, the coincidental failure to properly address the high-risk populations, Suppression of early studies by Eastern Virginia and Henry Ford Medical System advocating early treatment protocols. Aggressive censorship of early treatment research and advocacy and condemnation of hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin on the basis of bad studies. Also, later failure to promote monoclonal antibodies that clearly were efficacious. Politically motivated nihilistic consensus that was clearly malfeasance promotion of vaccines that were experimental and had uneven and troubling results in studies of efficacy and safety, denial of the clear and sensible truth that natural immunity was superior to the genomic experimental stimulant, persecution and censorship of those who abdicated more than nihilism and ambulatory treatment, adoption of mass vaccination, mass testing of even asymptomatic persons, testing with tests that were unreliable in order to stir up a panic and fear. Persistent advocacy of masks in isolation when research results didn't support the policies. Failure after vaccines came out to properly assess the efficacy and risks resulting in unusual and previously never seen rates of failure on the efficacy side and harm and even death on the risk side. 
Also, persistent promotion of vaccines and then boosters as the magic bullet, even after the vaccine failures were piling up. Refusal to pay attention to other countries' successes with outpatient ambulatory prophylaxis and treatment protocols. And finally, throughout the pandemic, widespread misuse of positive tests or case counts as a metric rather than hospitalizations and deaths. And failure to properly report cause of deaths and age-related morbidity and mortality. All unrestrained forms of panic porn promoted by government agencies and the media. That's quite a list. But again, how informed do you want to be? How much do you want to take ownership of your own point of view on this matter? I have a link in the show notes. I hope you'll check it out. One other article that I wanted to touch on, and if this is if you've been wondering, well, how long is this COVID crisis going to continue? You know, if you've wondered this, welcome to the club. I think we've all been thinking this for about the last two years now. Josiah Lippincott recounts a few other times the state has overreacted and what it took for authorities to eventually come to their senses. And he says the everlasting COVID crisis will follow a similar pattern. He says, in 1972, three black men, Melvin Kale, Lewis Moore, and Henry D. Jackson Jr., hijacked Southern Airways Flight 49, demanding $10 million and safe passage to Cuba. The hijacking, lasting nearly 30 hours, involved multiple stops throughout the United States, Canada, and eventually Cuba. In the process of negotiating with the FBI, the hijackers threatened to ram their aircraft, a Douglas DC-9, into the high-flux isotope reactor in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, if their demands weren't met. Now, until that point, American Airlines had resisted installing metal detectors in airports, worried that treating Americans like common criminals to board a plane would wreck their burgeoning industry. But that threat of nuclear attack and the 130 other hijackings between 1968 and 1972 convinced the government to take a stand at last. And in 1973, the FAA used its bureaucratic and administrative powers to make passenger screening mandatory. In 1974, Congress validated the requirement, ignoring passengers' rights groups that protested the intrusive screening of luggage and persons in order to board aircraft. Now, there's an important lesson here. Once the modern American state imposes surveillance measures, it never relaxes them, even when the threat no longer exists. That's why even after American troops have left Afghanistan, Osama bin Laden was killed, ISIS has been destroyed, Americans are still removing their shoes in airports, treated like would-be terrorists for traveling. The humiliating x-ray machines that force grandmothers, children, and ordinary businessmen to stand alike like felons with their hands up while probing machines attempt to peek under their clothes at their naked bodies is the height of ritual humiliation. And the seeming elimination of this surveillance network's reason to exist doesn't mean those leftover policies of the war on terrorism are over. Far from it. He says, my children and grandchildren, barring some dramatic political shift, will be subject to the same post-9-11 security measures that I grew up with. The bureaucratic state moves in one direction. It always gets bigger, more powerful, more entrenched. That there's never any reversal of state power, even when the threats that seemingly necessitated government interference in the first place are gone. And Mr. Lippincott says COVID will follow the same course. The attention and energy the regime gives to the illness will wax and wane, but it will never disappear entirely. The biomedical security state created in the virus's wake is here to stay. 
10 years from now, for instance, discussion about boosters, vaccine efficacy, health checks, asymptomatic spread, and flattening the curve will still be part of our national discourse, permanently ingrained in our collective psyche by the innumerable bureaucracies, corporations, and media entities that see in this global health crisis a never-ending potential for grift. At a psychological level, liberals gravitate to despotic surveillance measures. Liberalism is a feminine tyranny, like a neurotic mother trying to protect her toddler from every possible pain. The liberal longs for a world without any possibility of danger. The padded cell with every risk and inconvenience removed is her paradise. Now, the spiritual inclination towards weakness and ugliness explains why, in the face of all the rational decision-making, of all rational decision-making, leftists collectively decided that closing schools, cutting off the elderly from the outside world, and crushing small businesses were the only ways to stop the illness. There was never any concern for the possible social, economic, or political side effects. In fact, those very pains and challenges made the draconian social measures all the more enticing. He says, COVID gives our decrepit, aging, and ideologically fanatical ruling class something to live for. Just one more narcotic with which to fill the God-shaped hole in the liberal heart. And like any good religion, it has its prophets like Fauci, its villains, the unvaccinated, and its own demand for ritual sacrifice, in this case, of the young. And like all religions, it does not tolerate heretics. Josiah Lippincott says if there's to be any freedom for Americans from the techno-medical despotism spreading around the world, it will require either a supreme act of statesmanship or cataclysm. And by cataclysm, I don't mean another hyperventilating media-driven crisis like COVID. Financial collapse, famine, and war might finally liberate us from the rule of the spiritual hysterics and grifters who currently run the world. Now, that's a tough black pill to swallow. But in human life, every black pill is always a white pill, too. Every abyss is a chance at rebirth. Like the phoenix rising from the flames of the cleansing fire, new possibilities can emerge from moments of profound terror and death. Now, that's a problem, of course. Nobody prays to live through Armageddon. It'd be better if we had a life of liberty and peace without terror and crisis. But that requires a fighting spirit and a willingness to push back against the administrative tyranny that rings around all of modern life. So we need leaders willing to fight. And he says, let us pray that we find such individuals. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You may have heard some rumors that this is a gathering place for wrong thinkers of every stripe. Well, those rumors are true. And whether you are a, uh, an affirmed wrong thinker or just a little bit wrong think curious, I'm glad you're part of our audience today. My goal is not to persuade you that I have all the answers, that I can tell you what to think and I know what's best, so you better listen and believe what I say. I'm just here to provide what I hope is the best information that I've been able to glean, and I, I'm not exaggerating when I tell you, I spend the majority of my spare time looking for the best information 
unpoliticized, credible information that can shed real light on what the world around us is really all about. But I leave that determination of whether this is right and whether it's something that you should adopt into your thinking and your worldview, that's up to you. What you do with this information is entirely up to you. If you say, yeah, I don't believe it, I'm not going to be offended. Because my belief system doesn't require you to agree with me in order for me to, to put it out there. I think you're smart enough to, to determine for yourself whether this holds up or not. I have some great sponsors who make this show possible. Just want to give a quick uh, bit of recognition to them. They include MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah, HSLAmmo.com, Sewing and Quilting Center in St. George, and also GovernYourIncome.com. Well, let's start with, uh, I mentioned in the last hour that uh, my show is finally on the radar of YouTube's censors. And while I... You know, on the one hand, it's like, oh, great. You know, now now I got to wonder if are they, they pouring over everything? Truth be told, I don't really care. I'm not going to change a single thing in how I do what I do. But I do think that it's worth considering why this is not such a great thing. And, you know, people who aren't fond of me, well, you're probably thinking, go YouTube. <laughs> Where can I send some flowers to you? But Caitlin Johnstone, who writes from Australia, says Silicon Valley shouldn't be restricting public discourse about COVID measures that affect everyone. I want you to hear what she has to say. She says Twitter has banned the amount of contra- the account rather of controversial virologist Dr. Robert Malone, who reportedly had half a million followers at the time of his removal. Now Malone is credited even by mainstream critics as having played a significant role in the development of the mRNA technology being used for COVID-19 vaccines today. But he's recently come under fire for comments about the safety of those vaccines' use on children, which the authorized fact-checkers have labeled dangerously and flagrantly incorrect. So everyone should oppose the removal of Malone and commentators who share his views, regardless of whether they agree with them or even vehemently despise them. Caitlin Johnstone says the reason for this is very simple. Only a fool would support government-tied, monopolistic, billionaire corporations regulating public discourse about COVID responses which affect us, responses which affect us, affect us all. And she says this is true regardless of what you personally happen to believe about mRNA, mRNA vaccines. Now, Caitlin Johnstone says arguments that Malone and his ilk are peddling misinformation have no bearing on the question of whether they should be removed from the platforms everyone uses to debate ideas and discuss information. It's entirely legitimate to make arguments that their claims are inaccurate, inaccurate rather, but it's not at all legitimate to claim that platforms which large sectors of humanity have come to rely on for public discourse should be interfering with or obstructing those conversations. Here's a tweet from Dr. Eli David. Dr. Malone may be right or wrong in his views regarding COVID vaccines, but he is a respectable scientist, the inventor of mRNA vaccine technology, and so has the right to state his scientific opinion. There's no justification for suspending him. It's a disgrace. Caitlin Johnstone says, even if we were to accept unconditionally the position that people should be banned from such platforms if they're posting misinformation. Who exactly do we imagine would be determining whether something is misinformation or not? 
Will we be consulting some impartial, agendaless, omniscient demigod through some sort of crystal ball or magical rune portal? Or would we in fact be relying on flawed human beings looking at the information through the lens of their own cognitive biases, agendas, perceptual distortions, and knowledge limitations? That's a good point. And she says, I ask, because historically, what these giant Silicon Valley corporations have, have been doing to determine who gets to have a voice and who doesn't is working in consultation with think tanks funded by governments and the military-industrial complex, like the Atlantic Council, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, as well as working with the U.S. government directly to an increasingly intimate degree. By the way, she links to each of these claims, so you can follow it up for yourself is she telling us the truth? Click on the links. Find out. Caitlin Johnston says this fact is devastating to the popular argument that they're merely private corporations enforcing their terms of service, since they are becoming inseparably interwoven with government power. In a corporatist system of government, corporate censorship is state censorship. She's absolutely right. She says public discourse is consolidated on these giant plat platforms to an extent that getting your ideas heard by a large number of people requires participation in them. And now they're determining how issues of such immense political importance as government pandemic responses may be discussed. And in doing so, and they're doing so in increasingly intimate collaboration with the most powerful governments on earth. Now, she says the restrictions on public discourse about the way human civilization responds to COVID-19 were first normalized in 2020 by the deplatforming of weirdos like David Icke for conspiracy theories linking coronavirus symptoms to 5G. And that normalization has continued to metastasize so far over the last year and a half. So now it's considered perfectly acceptable for these platforms to ban a popular scientific researcher whose work helped develop mRNA vaccines, simply for expressing his scientific opinion about them. Caitlin Johnston says humanity is a mess. We are dealing with so many deep, deep problems and facing so many existential hurdles in our immediate future. And it's clear that the people in charge aren't going to navigate us through them with any degree of skill. Now, this means we have to figure things out as a collective. Now, I'm, I'm interpreting what she's saying, but it, to me, it's we have to figure this out for ourselves. That doesn't mean turn it over to the collective power of government. But as individuals combining our mind power, yeah, that's how we're going to do it. And she says we're not going to be able to do that if we're forbidden from communicating with each other in ways that the powerful uh, don't approve. Caitlin Johnston says certainly allowing human speech to flourish unrestricted would mean a lot of people saying things that we disagree with, even saying things that are objectively or demonstrably wrong. But the alternative is allowing speech to be controlled by the same power structure, which saw fit to invade Iraq, which is currently committing genocide in Yemen and pushing us toward direct military confrontation with Russia and China. Government-tied oligarchic megacorporations are among the very last institutions who should be in charge of worldwide political discourse. Amen. Caitlin Johnston says, The future of humanity depends on our ability to bring light to the darkness, to bring awareness to that of which we are not aware. As with individual awakening, a collective awakening will necessarily be sloppy, clumsy, and full of confrontation and awkward conversations. 
but it's the only way we can begin working our way toward becoming a species whose actions are based on truth rather than untruth, on consciousness rather than unconsciousness. And until that happens, she says, we will necessarily continue along our our self-destructive trajectory. I pointed this out before. On many issues, I'm sure Caitlin Johnstone and I would, would not see eye to eye. Still, I value her voice. I value her input because time and again, I have seen that she is willing to speak the truth as she sees it and not to try to slant it or spin it or otherwise, you know, shade it in a, in a way that would be deceptive in the least. That's a rare thing. She's one of those people out there who's doing a lot of the heavy lifting. And even though we may bump into some ideas where it's like, nope, we're not going to agree on that one. doesn't matter. Because I can see that she is very anxiously engaged in a quest to find the truth and speak the truth as best she understands it. Well, guess what? I'm engaged in a very similar quest. And hopefully you are as well within your circle of influence. Reasonable people can disagree. It's the unreasonable people who think that, well, I better find some way to put a gag on you and otherwise prevent you from, you know, saying words that I don't want other people to hear. I'm pretty confident the truth is going to come out in the end, and I want people looking at it from as many angles as possible. Because even if I don't agree, at least it will help broaden my perspective by considering what this other person has to offer. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. If you find value in this program, in its message, in the articles and commentaries and the commentators that I bring to you on a daily basis... Consider subscribing, and I'll send you a copy of my show notes. I'll just drop them into your email inbox. And, you know, I don't, I don't sell or keep your email information for the purposes of, you know, exploiting you. Facebook and other platforms. <laughs> yeah, I'm Google, looking at you. But I do want to get this information out, and, and if it's something that you find useful, maybe even consider telling a friend about it. And please, please, I would ask, show some love to my sponsors. For instance, uh, the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage in St. George, Utah. These are the folks you want to talk to if you are looking to buy a home or, for that matter, refinance your existing home. From VA loans to traditional homes to reverse mortgages, I want you to talk to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage if you are anywhere within the state of Utah. Because Heather has decades of experience in the lending industry. She clearly knows what the lender needs. She knows what the borrower needs. But most importantly, she is the one who can be on your side to make things happen when time is of the essence. You know, like uh, when the real estate market is white hot. You can contact her at 435-703-4522. Stop by the office at seven, or, sorry, 619 South Bluff Street in St. George. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386, and Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. Well, you know, it used to be said that anyone who would ever mention the free state, or I'm sorry, the deep state, two different things here, the deep state, was dismissed as a wild-eyed conspiracy theorist. Well, 
I got an article here in front of me from Judge Andrew Napolitano that has a very reasoned, rational explanation of the deep state and its tentacles that spells out the danger of unelected bureaucrats and agents and their impact on our freedoms. He says, two recent and unconnected revelations demonstrate that the deep state remains engaged, deceptive, and dangerous. Here's the backstory. First of all, the deep state consists of those parts of government that do not change in response to elections and are not transparent or answerable to voters. Now, this generally includes the intelligence and law enforcement communities, the military and diplomatic communities, and central bankers. Each has its private sector collaborators. Some would include the judiciary. Now, Judge Napolitano says, as a former member of the judiciary from one of the four states that grant life tenure to judges, he says, I don't consider judges to be in the same category as CIA, FBI, and other thugs armed or flush with cash who have their own secret agendas. He says, with the sole exception of the unconstitutional Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, judges operate in public courtrooms. And whatever they do is reduced to writing and subject to appeal or public criticism. But he says the deep state is well below the visible parts of government and rarely subject to public scrutiny. Its budgets are secret and its power is rarely subject to to appeal of any sort. Its two most notorious members and the two that tormented former President Donald J. Trump are intelligence and law enforcement. And the two best known in those communities are the CIA and FBI. Now, he says readers of this column know the CIA tortures people in foreign lands, believing that somehow torture committed outside the United States cannot subject its officers to prosecution. We know this because of recent revelations in hearings in the military courtrooms at the U.S. Naval Base at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba. There have been no full jury trials there since the inception, 20 years ago, of this George W. Bush-inspired modern-day Devil's Island. But there have been hearings with juries to determine the punishment of those who pleaded guilty to federal crimes. In one of those hearings, we learned of four years of torture of a foreign national at the hands of the CIA, only to have its officers reveal their opinion that the torture was useless, as the victim was telling the truth before, during, and after they repeatedly invaded his body cavities and nearly froze him to death in a walk-in refrigerator and freezer. These revelations were not challenged by the military and civilian prosecutors. Now, Napolitano says there are many CIA actions that the agency wishes we did not know about, such as the wars it has fought, its physical presence in every state house in the U.S., and its domestic spying on Americans without search warrants. When, De- when General David Petraeus was director of the CIA, he admitted in a talk he thought was secret, but which was secretly recorded, that the CIA has access to all microchips in your home. So if you own a microwave oven, the CIA is quite literally in your kitchen. If you use a cell phone or drive a car, the CIA literally goes wherever you go. No statute authorizes CIA torture or domestic spying. In fact, the Constitution and treaties to which the U.S. is a signatory and federal statutes prohibit both types of behavior. Yet CIA agents engage in criminal behavior because they can and because they know they can get away with it. Over the Christmas holiday, CIA officials leaked to friendly reporters at CNN their determination to overhaul their network of spies, cease paramilitary actions, which presumably include torture, and return to the quiet statecraft of spying on adversaries like China and Russia. 
Then the CIA learned that it has failed to recruit enough Mandarin and Russian-speaking agents to do so. So, criminal and inept. We also learned shortly before the Christmas holiday from testimony at Guantanamo Bay that nine FBI agents were formally transferred to the CIA so they'd be free to engage in torture themselves without damaging the reputation of the FBI. CIA agents apparently don't care about their employer's reputation the way their bosses do. During the Christmas holiday, former FBI agents revealed that they and others had secretly gone undercover and pretended to be part of the mobs that engaged in the riots in in Portland, Oregon in 2020. There, 200 folks were arrested in a six-month period and charged with various crimes, ranging from unlawful assembly to obstruction of justice to using violence to destroy government property. Now, when FBI agents go undercover, their task is to blend in with the folks they're secretly monitoring. And that often means committing the same crimes as these folks. Thus, 100 of the 200 cases were dropped because the FBI agents who were sent to join the mob and who pretended to be part of it failed adequately to chronicle what they saw. Or so their now retired former colleagues say. Now, we will, of course, never know the true reasons why these cases were dropped. Nor will we know which of these crimes were actually provoked or committed by FBI agents. We know from reports by the Inspector General of the Department of Justice for 2020 and from courtroom files in the FBI-created conspiracy to kidnap the governor of Michigan that the FBI never prosecutes its own when they're undercover and commit crimes and, in fact, regularly permits its undercover sources to commit crimes with impunity. And he asks, what is going on here? What's going on is the destruction of personal liberty in America by the very same folks we hired to protect it. CIA and FBI agents have all taken the same oath as I did, he says, when I became a judge to abide by the Constitution. And the folks who torture, spy without warrant, and create and participate in criminal behavior have become a law unto themselves as they decide which laws to break, which laws to uphold, and whom to permit to get away with lawless behavior. This will bring us to ruination, says Judge Andrew Napolitano. And he asks, why do we tolerate it? I'll have a link to this in the show notes. And I'm just going to throw this out there because, again, we are coming up fast on the anniversary of January 6th. You know that there are people within the political class who are going to be trying to milk that for all it's worth. It was as bad as 9-11. They're going to wallow in their self-pity. They're going to wallow in the idea that America itself was under attack. But based on this article I just shared with you from Judge Napolitano, doesn't it just raise at least a small question in your mind? How many of those people who initially breached the Capitol, how many of them were working for the feds? I think it's a fair question. It's something that, of course, uh, uh, the federal apparatus is very, very tight-lipped about. It's almost as if they don't really want us to be thinking about that or considering that. In the meantime, hundreds of people sit in jail, some in solitary confinement, for the crime of having wandered through the Capitol uninvited. Doesn't that strike you as a little bit off? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to again send a bit of love out here to my sponsors. Um, I've briefly mentioned a few times GovernYourIncome.com. And if you're one of the people who was facing, you know, the danger of vaccine mandates and being told, look, you either get the jab or you don't have a job. The thought may have crossed your mind that maybe I need a different job. Maybe I need to be doing something where I can stand on my own feet, you know, work for myself, work for create my own hours, live where I want to live, do what I would like to do. This may be something worth exploring. If you'll click on the link to GovernYourIncome.com. You will learn about a system of learning how to do day trading in the foreign currency exchange markets, the Forex markets. Now, they'll explain it all to you. Again, click on the link. This isn't for everybody. Okay, This is, this is not a get-rich-quick kind of thing. It requires a very serious investment of time, money, and yourself to learn the system. But I'm very confident for the right person, this is going to be um, just exactly what they need, that key to financial independence where you're not depending on some employer and and whatever corporate dictates mingled with government that, you know, may be raining down on you. GovernYourIncome.com. There's a link in the show notes. I hope you'll check it out. Well, you know, social change comes gradually enough that sometimes it's very hard to recognize when it's happening, unless you happen to be paying close attention. I mentioned uh, the Boy Scouts in yesterday's show, and it was funny. I saw this article pop up on my feed. This is from intellectualtakeout.org. But if you've ever wondered, whatever happened to the Boy Scouts? Got a pretty solid explanation here for you from Walter Block. He says, you know, it was once an honor to earn a merit badge in the Boy Scouts. Becoming a Star Scout was a privilege. Life Scout was something fantastic. And an Eagle Scout was the very tip of the apex. Few achieved that pinnacle, and those who did treasured it for their entire lives. But even those who didn't attain these levels were still enriched by the Boy Scouts via lessons in life skills and teamwork. Now, sadly, the Boy Scouts of America filed for bankruptcy on February 18th of 2020. First formed in 1910, this organization was once one of the most popular institutions in the entire country. Why its demise? And the simple answer is that the Boy Scouts succumbed to the threats of political correctness and wokesterism, particularly through the acceptance of homosexuality and feminism. There were more than 92,000 cases filed against the Boy Scouts for sexual abuse. Like the Catholic Church, which dealt with priests abusing young boys, Boy Scouts found themselves infiltrated by homosexual scout leaders who did the same to their young charges. Walter Block says one wonders why homosexual scoutmasters were welcomed into the ranks of scouting in the first place. Fifty years ago, the idea of a gay scoutmaster would have been anathema. The scout oath itself, On my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country, and to obey the scout law, to help other people at all times, to keep myself physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight. And that precludes homosexual behavior. But again, Political correctness got the upper hand. Walter Block says it was deemed impermissible to not welcome queer Boy Scout leaders into the organization. In the view of the Boy Scouts, gays were entirely within their rights to insist on taking leadership roles working with young boys. They are, after all, one of the demographics explicitly and specifically legally protected against discrimination in the United States. 
but parents of impressionable 13-year-old boys weren't exactly thrilled with this prospect. And they pulled their sons out of the organization in droves, leading to its drastic decline. Then feminists demanded that girls be allowed to join. Now, this is more than passing curious, given that there was a perfectly good and very similar organization, the Girl Scouts for the Feminine Sex. Would boys have been welcomed into that organization? Don't be silly. That's an offensive, sexist suggestion. But the obverse is not only allowed in the social justice philosophy, but actually required. Yet the demise of the Boy Scouts may not be properly fully laid at the doors of feminists and the queer communities. These groups were only accessing what the law of the land offered them. No, the Boy Scouts went under due to laws which weakened the more basic human right of free association. That no innocent person may properly be compelled to associate with anyone else, no exceptions here, against his will. Of course, homosexuals themselves violate this legislation. They rule out half the human race as bed partners and romantic love interests, as do the heterosexuals. They're guilty of the exact same crime of discrimination. Only the bisexuals are innocent of this discriminatory practice. So there we have it. The logic of anti-discrimination laws lead to compulsory bisexuality. Now, the counter-argument to the foregoing is that anti-discrimination laws should and do apply only to commercial, not personal, interactions. But why should we accept so facile a distinction Surely, if it's wrong to discriminate against women, gays, and members of certain ethnic groups, this should apply to all realms of human interaction, the personal as well as the business and the the employment world. Otherwise, we're faced with anomaly that the personal is relatively unimportant and only commerce is important. And he says, perish the thought that this could be possible. I get this is going to, you know, this is going to hit people different ways, but... He's right. And this is this is one of the tough things. I struggled with this when I was first introduced to the idea. But I believe in a free society, you should be free to discriminate against whomever you wish to discriminate against. As long as your behavior is peaceful, you're not initiating violence against them or their property. You should be free to associate with or not associate with anybody that you want to. In other words, whatever is in your heart, the reason for it is not important. It's the idea that someone should come along and bring government, hey, make him associate with that person or them or this person. That's a thuggish mentality. We need the state to step in here and make this happen. And and now, in this time of transgenderism, it's, 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 it's beyond ridiculous. I mean, you're actually seeing campaigns come forward where people are saying, look... Guys who will not date uh, a man who is uh, transgender now and considers itself to be a woman, that's discriminatory. In other words, uh, a guy who says, look, I don't want to hook up with what started out as a biological male who may or may not still have, you know, the uh, necessary appendages and and pretend that that's, uh, that's actually a woman. And I know I'm straying onto thin ice here, so I'm going to quietly skate back over to, to the safer part of the lake here. But these are things that would require us to defy reality. And if someone says, look, there is no way on earth I'm going to date somebody who is, is transsexual. That's absolutely their right. And, and they're not a bigot 
for having that line in the sand. It's their preference. Just as they may prefer a certain breakfast cereal or whatever, nobody should be compelled to associate with people they don't want to associate with. You know, some people may see it as hateful, but I suspect that most of the people who would are the same kind of people who would invoke, let's bring in the thugs, let's bring in government, and force people, bake that cake, do this date hit, date sham, or anyway, you get the picture. Gosh, no wonder we're having, you know, such a struggle of people, you know, trying to keep their mental health. When it's, when it's insisted that you have to defy reality, you have to ignore reality in order to fit in in society. That's a pretty tough position to be in, but uh, hey, I guess if, if you're going you're gonna to test and see who's got the stronger will, well, let's have that contest. Now, of course, nothing that I'm saying here is to imply that uh, d- choosing to discriminate or choosing to not associate with a certain group of people means you are bound to uh, go out there and denigrate other people and treat them as somehow less than you. That's the mark of a small soul. And unfortunately, it also seems to very well describe the very behavior of the people who are pushing so-called tolerance the hardest. I don't know why they're blind to it, but they don't see it. They don't see how hateful and, and despicable their treatment of other people is just because someone isn't marching in lockstep or chanting in unison with them. Well, I'm not trying to control them. The only person over whom I have rightful control is me. But there comes a point where you do have to insist, look, leave me alone. Back off (laughs) while you still have a chance to back off because I'm not going to be forced into doing something I don't want to do. I do think it's in our best interest to treat each other with respect. Even when we have, you know, significant differences. And I think that leading out by example is probably the best way to go about that. But let's not pretend that, uh, boy, if we could just force more people to, you know, be tolerant, boy, we'd be a great society. Nope. If you're going to be tolerant, that has to be freely chosen, just like any other virtue. If it's not freely chosen, then it ain't real. Sorry. Just the facts. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. You know, a few days ago, I shared an article about uh, prophetic U.S. presidents. David Butler is the author, and he talked about three different presidents, George Washington, Dwight D. Eisenhower, and Ronald Reagan. Interesting that uh, we're not seeing, you know, FDR, (laughs) John Kennedy, or even Abraham Lincoln in that case. But uh, it was a fascinating article he had written about George Washington. I have linked to that article again in the show notes, but he has the second installment here. And this is about American prophet Dwight D. Eisenhower, how he correctly identified and warned of the dangers that would come from our own government. So the introduction he gave when talking about uh, George Washington was he says, the the prophets of the Bible are individuals chosen by God to speak for God. 
Many mentions of prophets are made in the Bible, and uh, he talks about, in fact, a section of the Old Testament is devoted to a collection of books by them. Their names and quotes appear all over the New Testament. They're the subject of sermons these days. He says, prophets speak loudly from the pages of the past, and their words seem to take on greater meaning over time. David Butler says, as a fan of American history, I often think of historic figures as similar to the prophets of the Bible, whose lives, experiences, achievements, and words take on greater meaning over time and provide us with guidance concerning the challenges we face today. So he talked about George Washington in the first installment. Now, Here's his take on Dwight Eisenhower. He says, like George Washington, Dwight Eisenhower was a commanding general who led American and allied forces in a great war for freedom. Just as General Washington, uh, this time, overseas on foreign soil. Now, just as General Washington led his troops across the Delaware in a surprise attack against Hessian troops during a pivotal battle in the Revolutionary War, General Eisenhower oversaw the D-Day amphibious invasion across the British Channel to liberate France from Nazi Germany, a pivotal battle in the Second World War. Also like Washington, President Eisenhower's prevailing interest was keeping the United States out of another war with rival international powers. After the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings, the United States and world were now in a nuclear age, and Eisenhower knew that world war could mean global devastation. Now, Eisenhower oversaw a post-war economic boom and an expansion of another kind, and that was an expansion of government, including, in the military, intelligence agencies and the buildup of military equipment and material to support a peace-through-strength foreign policy. The post-World War II era also saw an expansion in the use of experts from academia and the business world who sought to apply sophisticated research models to address, but often not resolve, public policy concerns. Safe to say, as a Midwester from the Kansas Plains and a military leader with experience dealing with bureaucracies, Eisenhower was a skeptic of big government. Eisenhower delivered his farewell address during a live television broadcast January 17, 1961. Listen to this quote. Crises there will continue to be. In meeting them, whether foreign or domestic, great or small, there is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties. But each proposal must be weighed in light of a broader consideration. The need to maintain balance in and among national programs, balance between the private and public economy, balance between cost and hoped-for advantage, balance between the clearly necessary and the comfortably desirable. Balance between our essential requirements as a nation and the duties imposed by the nation upon the individual. Balance between action of the moment and the national welfare of the future. End quote. David Butler writes, Eisenhower was concerned about the undue influence wrought by the close relationship between military leaders and war planners with the private sector contractors that supply the military with equipment, material, and technology, and, of course, the members of Congress who approve the expenditures. Eisenhower warned, quote, In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. 
Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together. End quote. Now, David Butler says Eisenhower was also skeptical of potential corrupting influence of government funding adversely affecting the independence of universities, academic researchers, and scientists. He was concerned the federal bureaucracy might join forces with academics to form an intellectual elite that may seek to dominate public policy to the detriment of the people and their elected representatives. Quote, the prospect of domination of the nation's scholars by federal employment, project allocations, and the power of money is ever-present and is gravely to be regarded. Yet in holding scientific research and discovery in respect, as we should, we must also be alert to the equal and opposite danger that public policy could itself become the captive of a scientific technological elite. End quote. David Butler says Eisenhower's advice to his peers and successors was to carefully manage these interests while prioritizing the nation's democratic institutions and ensuring individual liberty. Here's what Eisenhower had to say about that. Quote, it is the task of statesmanship to mold, to balance, and to integrate these and other forces, new and old, within the principles of our democratic system, ever aiming toward the supreme goals of our free society. End quote. Now, like Washington, Eisenhower concluded his comments by encouraging Americans to be guided by their faith in the Almighty and govern with humility and a commitment to principle. Eisenhower said, You and I, my fellow citizens, need to be strong in our faith that all nations under God will reach the goal of peace with justice. May we be ever unswerving in devotion to principle, confident but humble with power, diligent in pursuit of the nation's great goals. I think Eisenhower was right on the money as far as his warning about the uh, military-industrial complex. And I I won't link to it, but uh, at some point I'll bring up Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation has one of the most remarkable uh, descriptions of the deal with the devil that the American public made following World War II that brought that military-industrial complex into being. It's really quite a remarkable uh, recounting of what happened there, but it very closely mirrors the warning that uh, Dwight Eisenhower gave. The difference is that uh, Jacob, Jacob Hornberger goes into some actual detail and says, look, there were people who said, look, I know you Americans want to feel safe, or my fellow countrymen, these were, you know, after all Americans that were putting this together, but in order to keep you safe, you're going to have to let us do some things that uh, may seem questionable. In other words, to, to stand up to the corruption and the, uh, the evil of the Soviets and communism, we're going to have to act a lot like them. But we'll do it, you know, behind the scenes. We'll do it out of view. So you don't have to worry your conscience with with what's going on. All we need is, you know, the funding to make this happen. And we'll make that happen through Congress. But, you know, some of this is going to be off the books. Again, we have to keep this in the dark. You know, these secrets are to protect you. I think about how we teach our kids. You know, when we're teaching them about stranger danger. One of the things that kids have to understand from a very early age is that when someone says, hey, now this has to be our secret. You can never tell your parents. Don't tell anybody else. This has to stay between us. 
the people who use that kind of language and who use that kind of logic generally do not have something good as their motivation. Typically, this is what pedophiles will use when they're grooming kids and, and uh, you know, actively victimizing them. It's an exploitative mindset. And it's something that has been used to great effect by the intelligence communities, by, you know, the, the, uh, the punitive priesthood, if you will, the organized violence uh, cadre in, in our society. This is, this is not to say that there aren't good people out there who are police or soldiers or sailors or airmen. It's just a matter of the people calling the shots behind the scenes and the people who are doing, you know, torture in overseas prisons and so forth. What Dwight Eisenhower warned about and that that uh, meshing of corporate America with with the U.S. government and its its uh, goals, it's happening. It's not just happening in terms of war or war making capability. <clears throat> we see it happening in terms of uh, how COVID has been approached and you know the the mitigation efforts, the vaccines, and so forth. Anyway, it's a lot to get your mind around. The the point is, Eisenhower was right. He was prophetic for a president. I'm interested to see what David Butler's next installment is, because that one will talk about Ronald Reagan. And I will share it with you right here on this program. Thanks again for listening. This is The Brian Hyde Show.